From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Kate Rayworth of Donut Economy fame. Her book, Donut Economics, which I just finished last night actually, is now in my top 10 list of econ titles. It's right up there with some real classics like Small is Beautiful, The Diseconomics of Growth, and of course the Daily Farley textbook we talked about last week. Donut Economics is crystal clear, compelling, and chock full of profound insights and brilliant policy ideas. Now Kate has a BA in Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, and an MS in Economics. Both degrees are from Oxford University, where she now serves as a research associate. Kate Rayworth, welcome to The Steady Stater. Thank you so much. I'm really, really delighted to be here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, Kate, we covered your bona fides a bit, but we like to get to know our guests a little more, so can you tell us your personal story in a nutshell? Yeah, well, as you said, I studied economics at Oxford University back in the early 1990s. I was a innocent, naive, excited economics student, and I, and I ate it all up, all those textbooks, because I'd never studied econ before, whereas some of my fellow students had. It took me quite a while to be able to realize that the very things that had brought me to university, like ecological breakdown and social injustice, they just weren't showing up in the syllabus. And the living world, uh, you couldn't really study it directly. It was a, a one-week session in a, in a class on public economics, and it was all about gloop in the river, and we called it an environmental externality, and do you have a tax or a quota, and then we move on. And so after three years, yes, I then studied development economics, which made a lot more sense because it actually started with values, <laughs> people's lives, and what makes a human life worth living. But even at the end of that, I, I just thought I... I don't want to stick out my hand and introduce myself saying, hello, I'm an economist. I don't feel proud of this. So I walked away from academic economics and I spent three years working with barefoot entrepreneurs in the villages of Zanzibar and then four years at the Human Development Report at the United Nations and then over a decade with Oxfam. Then I became a mother. Then there was a global financial crisis and everyone started saying, oh, oh, we need to rewrite economics to reflect financial crisis and realities. And I just remember thinking, really? What, wait, what, just for that? Only that? Shall we not also rewrite it to reflect ecological breakdown and social crisis? And it was at that moment that I then read all the economics I'd never been taught. And I immersed (laughs) myself in the work of Herman Daly, ecological economics, feminist, behavioral complexity, institutional economics, and donor economics is the result. It's the book that I wish I could have read when I was a student that makes all those ideas dance on the same page. Mm-hmm. Well, you sure covered a lot of ground there, and, um, and we're all glad you did. Now, we're going to be talking all about the donut economy for the rest of the show, so you don't need to cover everything just yet, but could you give us uh, just a one-minute intro to the donut itself? Like, what's in the hole, what's outside, and what's in that sweet between? I sure can. So the donut is a compass for humanity, thriving in the 21st century. It's the kind with a hole in the middle. So that hole in the middle is a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have the resources they need 
to have decent food, healthcare, education, housing, political voice, a job. We want to leave nobody in the world in the hole in the middle of the donut. Get everybody inside its inner ring. But at the same time, and this is a very 21st century at the same time, we cannot use Earth's resources in such a way that we overshoot the outer ring because that is where we put so much pressure on this unique and delicately balanced living planet that we kick her life support systems out of balance. That's how we cause climate breakdown and acidify the oceans and create a hole in the ozone layer. So in the simplest terms possible, we need to live between the inner and outer ring. We need to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. For me, that is the starting point of economics and everything else is transformed when we begin there. Well, the beauty of that donut, it it's functions all at once as a really clear conceptual model and as a metaphor and a very non-threatening metaphor. Plus, it's pretty good for puns too. Let's not glaze over that. <laughs> now, now, Kate, the subtitle of your book is Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. So let's have a little fun here. Let's take turns and list these seven ways, and then we'll hit a highlight or two from each one. So I'll start with number one, which is change the goal from GDP to the donut. The second one is see the big picture. The economy is not just the self-contained market. The economy is embedded in society, embedded in the living world. Okay, and number three is nurture human nature from rational economic man to social adaptable humans. Number four is we've got to get savvy with systems. Don't think mechanical equilibrium. It's all about dynamic complexity. Okay. Number five is designed to distribute. From growth, we'll even it up again to distributive by design. And number six is create to regenerate. From growth, we'll clean it up again, because don't believe that's going to happen, to being regenerative by design. Mm -hmm. And number seven, be religiously and adamantly certain while communicating the need for a steady state economy. <laughs> <laughs> or in the way that I put it, be agnostic about growth. We've got to move from being growth addicted to growth agnostic. Oh, that's right. That's what it said. <laughs> well, in part two of the show, I'd like for us to explore some of the parallels between the donut and the steady state economy. But for mm -hmm. now, yeah, for now, I'd just like to proudly point out that Kate is one of our Cassie signatories, mm -hmm. along with most of the leading post-growth thinkers. Now, Kate, you signed the position in 2017, which is actually when Donut Economics was published. So I was wondering what came first into your mind, the steady state economy or the donut economy. But it sounds like you had covered, uh, I think as you put it, you ate up a lot of books. Home and Daily came first into my life. When I was reading all the economics I'd never been taught, I read Beyond Growth. And um, it was, it's one of those amazing books in your life that your brain is just doing somersaults. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this overturns everything I ta was taught. And wow, this makes so much more sense. And as you can tell from the book I wrote, I'm very driven by images. And mm -hmm. Daly's picture of moving from empty worlds, where we've got a little economy and a big biosphere, moving from that to full world, where we've got a big economy banging up against the edges of a rather over-squashed biosphere, that was massive for me. And when I first saw the diagram of planetary boundaries, which now form the outside of the donut, I 
saw that and I thought, wow, Earth system scientists have basically drawn Herman Daly's full world economy. They've shown us the way that the economy is not only just pushing up against planetary boundaries, it's going way beyond them. We are, we are, you know, the square is outside the circle. We are crushing these life support systems. So that was what got me to draw the donut. And it was the excitement of seeing Daly's concept actually quantified in Earth system science. And I wanted to bring the social equivalent sitting in Oxfam at my desk in this big open plan office of people advocating for rights worldwide. I thought Earth System Science are bringing to life Herman Daly's concept in quantitative measures. I want to bring the social justice side too. And so I drew a circle within a circle. So it absolutely founded on the inspiration of Herman Daly. Fascinating story and uh, very enlightening. Okay, well, going back to that first way to think like a 21st century economist, changing the goal. Kate, how did GDP growth become so entrenched as the top goal in economic policy to begin with? I think Simon Kuznets, who was commissioned to come up with this first metric of national income back in the 1930s by U.S. Congress, I think he is just turning in his grave. He's so frustrated with us because, as we know, he created the first national income accounts. He was a brilliantly clever economist. And he gave them with a caveat saying that these can scarcely be used to measure the welfare of a nation. He warned against the single number. He said it misses out unpaid care in the household. It misses out value created in the community. And it only counts what gets sold, not what gets turned into what can be sold. It counts the timber, not the loss of the forest. He knew it from the start. But the power of a single number. We see it in the media. We hear it in political speeches. We all know we're compelled by single powerful numbers and GDP became this number that was promised as a panacea for a nation's ills, whether it's unemployment or a trade deficit or a budget deficit. It seemed that GDP growth would help solve for that, including inequality. And I just find it fascinating that in 1961, at the birth of the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Article 1A says, our ambition here is to sustain the highest uh, rate of growth. Well, then it becomes a horse race and the OECD starts publishing tables that compare one country's GDP and growth rate to another. And so you've got this race on. It, it's just taken us phenomenally long for it to become more and more normal for politicians to start standing up in parliaments now and say, well, we know that this is not the measure of our nations. And yet still the next day they, they find themselves trapped in it. So hmm. my goodness, we are so ready to move beyond this one number. Yes. Okay, and number two is seeing the big picture. I think you addressed that fairly well in describing the donut and how you discovered or, and developed the donut. So number three was nurture human nature. How do we go about that, Kate? Well, we stopped teaching economic students that we are rational economic man because, and I drew a picture of him in the, in, in the book, so he'd be a man standing alone with money in his hand, ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. And researchers like Robert Frank had found that the more that you teach students that apparently this character is representative of us, the more students start to mimic him and they say they value self-interest, they value competition over altruism and collaboration. So who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. And that's why economics has to start, by recognizing that we are actually complex and we are the most social of all mammals. We are collaborators, we are conditional cooperators. And if we put the latest understanding of how humans actually behave 
into our economic models and policy making, we will do a far better job of indeed nurturing human nature into the direction of social collaboration, 10 billion human beings together on this planet. Mm. All right, so number four was get savvy with systems. How savvy do we have to get and which systems exactly are we talking about? Well, the good news is that we live in a world of complex systems. So all we need to do is really lift our heads from the page. Stop looking at supply and demand graphs with lines switching around the page. Look at the world, look at nature, how she grows, look at a murmuration of starlings and even then watch the rise and fall of stock markets or fashions or gossip and realize that the world is driven by reinforcing and balancing feedback loops. And by the way, anything that thrives and survives and endures is dominated by balancing feedback. But once, I mean, I, I, have, I have 11 year old kids and I taught them during lockdown, I was homeschooling and I taught them the basics of feedback loops. They drew an amazing diagram of their understanding of COVID and it's all social and political and economic impacts. Kids can get this. We can all get this. We just need to make sure we teach it in universities and then put it at the heart of our economics. Then we'll see tipping points coming. Then we'll be able to actually work with the dynamic reality of the economy as it is. No, oh, that's very encouraging. And number five was designed to distribute. You're, you're a passionate proponent of alternative currencies, aren't you? Well, I, I think they're fascinating in terms of making us realize that money is designed. Uh, I learned this from Bernard Lyotard. Every currency, you've got to ask who has the power to create it what characteristics does it have does it bear interest is it bear demurrage and uh, what can it be used for and these three traits of the design of currency just profoundly shape our behavior our relationships and distribution and inequalities so you know we, we grew up with the Kuznets curve Simon Kuznets again uh, brilliant research he did believing that economies as they get richer will first become more unequal but then they'll become more equal but he was even surprised by the results he found he said I, I didn't expect this but there we go that's what the data say on the page along come Thomas Piketty in 2014 he says you know Kuznets was right about that as countries got richer they got more unequal and then more equal but you know what he was measuring this before and after the wars and it's war that destroys the capital of the wealthy. And post-war, governments invest in health and education and housing. So it's war and government intervention that bent the curve down towards more equal societies. The market alone does not bring about equality. So we have to design to be more distributive. And I believe actually we should design pre-distribution into our economies so that we pre-distribute the sources of wealth creation, starting with investing in public health, public education for the potential of every human being. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, number six was create to regenerate. I don't want any listeners to conflate your donut economy with the so-called circular economy, but I guess you do see some merit in those efforts as well. Absolutely. We have to move from a linear degenerative industrial economy of the take, make, use, lose. We need to use resources again and again far more carefully, collectively, slowly and creatively. And so that does involve creating a circular or cyclical economy where, where resources, we mimic nature. Nature breaks things down and uses them again. We at the moment use them once and toss them into the sea or the atmosphere. We need to be reusing resources, repairing, refurbishing, restoring, um, retrofitting, and, and then regenerating as well when we come to working with land and organic materials, enabling nature to regenerate herself. Hmm. And finally, number seven was be agnostic about growth. And uh, 
I think that's going to be the primary topic uh, going forward. And Kate, this is so great, I hate to interrupt the flow, but we have to take a, a short non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. Hi there, we hope you're enjoying the show. Here at Cassie, we are committed to taking the road less traveled and exposing the harms of economic growth. We unapologetically highlight the fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. The Cassie position sets the record straight on this conflict and calls for a steady state economy as a desirable alternative to economic growth. Some of the brightest scientists, economists, and sustainability thinkers in the world have signed it, and numerous forward-thinking organizations have endorsed it. We invite you to join their ranks and take a stand with us for a smarter, fully sustainable economy. Just go to SteadyState.org and scroll down on the homepage until you see a big blue button that says sign the position. You can't miss it. Now, back to the show. You know, Kate, they say there are no atheists in foxholes. My guess is there aren't any agnostics in donut holes either. Anyone in the donut hole wants growth, but we seem to be just as certain that what lies beyond the outer crust of that donut leads to, well, you might say the foxholes of war, resource wars, and other Malthusian scenarios. Simply put, the economy can't be too small or too large. So why do we have to be agnostic about a steady state economy in the middle? Why not actually and proactively embrace that? Oh, well, tell me what you mean by steady state economy. Well, sure. So, you know, if economic growth is increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate, entailing a growing population and growing per capita production and consumption, and uh, as gauged by GDP, well, then the steady state economy is those things except stabilized instead of growing. So stabilized population times per capita production and consumption. And all else equal, you know, accounting for inflation and the propensity to use money as the means of exchange and uh, technology developments and so on, you know, it, it, it would be gauged by GDP. So when I'm saying economic growth, I mean, you know, GDP is the value, the financial value of goods and services sold in an economy in a year. And as you said, um, people who are currently living in the hole in the middle of the donut, uh, let, I've been talking with people in Cairo, in Bangladesh, in Zambia over the last couple of days. I fully believe those economies need and will have GDP growth. And they need that in order to enable everybody in that society to go to school and have health care and have decent housing and access to transport and income and to lead a decent life of opportunity and community. So there are plenty of economies in the world where I believe growth is coming and very much needed. And they have growing populations. And of course, when we come to the question of population, we absolutely need to stabilize the world's population. But we know how to do that. That's one thing policymakers no, there's a really reliable relationship between educating girls, women's reproductive health, investing in child health and women's empowerment. And when women are empowered and their children are healthy and survive, women are then empowered to choose to have fewer children. And that is the surest way. So actually getting everybody out of the hole in the middle of the donut is one of the best policies towards stabilizing the world population. So that takes care of the question of population. 
The donut, of course, is relevant to people across the world. So when I, well, let, let me pull back and say, when I say be agnostic about growth, I'm not saying, well, I don't care if we grow or don't grow. The point is, whether GDP is going up or down is not the metric that we should be focusing on. We have better metrics to focus on. We know that we are overshooting our planet's ecological capacity. So we need to focus on our carbon footprints and our consumption-based carbon footprints. And in high-income countries, we urgently need to reduce those. We need to focus on our material footprints, on our fertilizer and water and land use. Let's focus on the metrics that matter and that help us come back within planetary boundaries. Now, in high-income countries, the problem that people, and if I, I, what I want to do is get everyone to agree that is what matters and we need to bring down. Then let's move to the empirical question. Can this be done? with a GDP that's rising. So far, I have seen no evidence of countries that are able to reduce their impact on the planet at the speed and scale required while having a growing GDP. But what we need to do is therefore remove the growth dependency that's currently written into our economies, because we are, we're politically, financially and socially dependent upon endless economic growth, no matter how rich a nation already is. We need to remove that growth dependency so that we can actually focus on reducing our impact on the planet and allow GDP to adjust and come back within that. That is what I mean by being agnostic about growth. It's actually a quite radical position because it means you have to structure economy that enables you to thrive whether or not it grows. And it's about taking the growth dependency out of it. Okay. Well, so let, let's, if you don't mind, let's follow up just a little bit on that. And mm. uh, yeah, I'd like to try a little exercise I'd call rolling out the donut. Mm -hmm. So. Let's say we slice that donut right at the bottom. Mm -hmm. It's still nice and pliable because it hasn't been baked yet, let's see. Mm -hmm. so, so we pick up the left-hand side of it and roll it off to the right, like mm -hmm. into the shape of a breadstick. Yes. So now we have uh, these two parallel horizontal lines of the breadstick, yes. just like we had two concentric circles of the donut. Yes. And finally, let's say the bottom line is the social foundation, mm -hmm. while the top line is planetary boundaries or limits to growth, basically. Yes. What would we call that y-axis then? Is there anything better than GDP to put on that y-axis? Oh, it's a great question, and I don't think we know. I don't think that I don't think there is a y-axis answer for it definitively. If we're talking across all countries. What I, I'm, where I'm sure we really strongly agree is I don't think it can be broken completely. I don't think you can totally dematerialize the economy, but you can massively break the current uh, de de coupling of resource use and GDP because we've barely even started trying to redesign the way we live. We've barely started shifting from owning cars to just using them when we need them. We've barely started trying to use materials in a circular way or transforming our diets and so that we eat far healthier and with a less impact on the planet. And to me, this is really good news. There is so much scope in transforming our technologies, our systems of governance and our choices and lifestyles and what we think a good life is so that we can actually make more space in that breadstick that you describe of the donut. And it really, really differs country by country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, well, can I ask you, what, what, what do you think it should be GDP on that y-axis? Well, I do, but you know, I'm an adherent to what I call the trophic theory of money, which is that money originates via the agricultural and extractive surplus at the base of the economy that frees the hands for the division of labor mm -hmm. into all the manufacturing and service exchange at the higher trophic levels. 
So, but I, but I do realize there are a number of variables like, like I alluded to, or like I mentioned before, inflation and, and the propensity to use money as the means of exchange. At Cassie, we tend to treat GDP as a great indicator of environmental impact. <laughs> So. Well, I think it has been. I think it has been because we have linear degenerative economies and we've barely tried to transform our technologies and our social technologies and we haven't learned to govern ourselves or share resources um, and create commons. We live in a privatized and degenerative industrial system that uses material throughput to sell stuff to us again and again and again. And there are different ways we can do this. So I think there has indeed been a really strong historical correlation and I think it can be broken down, but not completely. So I think these cannot be utterly decoupled. And Aline, you know, I say be agnostic about growth, but by the way, really policymakers do not come and tell us we can have green growth, that we can have, we can decarbonize and dematerialize us, our economies on the scale needed, and we can have continued growth in high income countries. I've seen no evidence to date that mm -hmm. a nation is able to do that. So until we can show that that's feasible, or close to feasible, stop putting it on the name of your job description, on the name of your organization, on the name of your report and your initiative. It is not yet proven, and I, I, I believe actually what we need is thriving, not endless growth. We are still addicted to growth as a concept, and we need to move beyond it. Now, Kate, in Chapter 7, you talked about the addiction of the system to GDP growth, mm -hmm. not only the financial system, but the political system. And you identified three reasons that stand out among the politicians' concerns. Can you tell us about those three? So I say, you know, that we're politically addicted to GDP growth and politicians, one, that they hope that GDP growth is going to enable them to have higher tax revenue without raising taxes, right? The, many politicians don't want to raise taxes. In fact, they love to cut taxes. But if you have a growing economy with the same tax level, well, it'll give you higher tax revenue. So GDP seems to be one of the solutions to having to raise taxes. Oh, keep the economy growing and tax receipts will rise. Politicians quite rightly fear the unemployment line. And as many companies are still targeted on chasing labor productivity and they are minimizing uh, worker workforce size and they are trying to maximize output per person, well, if they're continually doing that, and yet the output of the economy isn't growing, you are de facto <laughs> going to get an unemployment line. And that, of course, is uh, what politicians are afraid of. They're afraid of the recession. They're afraid of unemployment. So that becomes a motor to them pursuing GDP growth. Without, say, thinking of what John Maynard Keynes thought of nearly a century ago, what about working part-time? What about actually sharing out the work that exists more equitably amongst people? So there's the desire to raise taxes without raising um, tax rates. There's the desire to stay away from long unemployment lines that'll, that they fear will happen. And then the third one is about positioning on the global stage. You know, think of that annual photograph taken of the political leaders at the G20. No, no G20 leader wants to lose their place in the, that family photo. But if their nation stops growing while the rest keep going, they will be nudged out by the next emerging powerhouse. And it's because having a big GDP is what gets you a place at the global table of power. And to me, this is actually probably the biggest challenge because it's part of the global military industrial complex of who has power, who has the military backing. And if you don't have a growing GDP, will others overtake you? So until we find other bases for international relations and global governance, 
I think countries will stay locked into this pursuit of GDP. This is why it's a really important topic to be discussed and not just in macroeconomics, but in um, international governance. Uh, it's a crucial mm -hmm. political question. Yeah, absolutely. We call that steady statesmanship. <laughs> now, Kate, you've been able to overcome some of these political barriers in places like, in cities, for, for sure, like Amsterdam and, and a few others, I think. Uh, and uh, what else is on the horizon? Where do we see it going next? So the interesting thing for me was when I was writing Donut Economics in about 2015, I, I was writing it with the students in mind. I was aiming to write a book that I wish I could have read when I was a student. And I very intentionally did not write it for politicians because I thought if I do that, I'll write something that's really practical and feasible and incremental and doable. And why would I do that? I'm going to just take appealing to politicians out of my range of view. I'm going to let that one go. I want to write for the long view. And what's amazed me is that since the book came out in 2017, I have been approached by so many politicians across the political spectrum, across different countries, which shows that basically the world is changing faster than we imagined and that there are politicians everywhere who are seeking something more, who are tired of saying what we need is green, sustainable, strong, inclusive growth. They know that by sticking all these adjectives in front of it, we're clearly trying to get to something more. So there is a real interest amongst political change makers, and I'm not going to try and make it sound like <laughs> politics everywhere is changing. Of course it's not. But inside every system, whether it's a political system or an economic system, business or universities, there are change makers. And they are coming and looking for this idea and wanting to talk about a bigger purpose for the economy. Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand is a great example of somebody who's moved to talking about a well-being economy. She wants to talk and promote an economy that thrives rather than one that grows. You mentioned Amsterdam. The deputy mayor of Amsterdam and others there said, we want to adopt the donut because it invites us to make Amsterdam, and this is a quote, Amsterdam as an inclusive, regenerative and thriving city for all residents while respecting planetary boundaries. That is a transformative vision for a city. Cities like uh, Brussels have also adopted it. Copenhagen's exploring it. Nanaimo in Canada. Um, Dunedin in New Zealand. So we've set up Donut Economics Action Lab to work with change makers from teachers to community activists to politicians to business leaders who want to put these ideas into action. And of course it gets complex when you start putting it into action, especially when you find yourself coming up against the prevailing economy and the prevailing system. But I sincerely believe that 21st century economics will be practiced first and theorized later. So I'm hanging out with the practitioners and learning so much from them. I have to say, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I'm so happy for your success. It's all very encouraging what you're doing, what you've accomplished and where you're headed. I know you're extremely busy, too, so I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you so much, and keep up the great work. Thank you, Brian, and I want to say that I think of this as big teamwork, and I think we're all actually working together on the same team about new economic thinking, and it might show up under different names, and we might be in different countries, but this is a global movement, and it's really important to recognize that we are part of a big team. And Wow, Herman Daly is foundational to the work I'm doing, so we're deeply connected by that. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Kate Rayworth, author of Donut Economics and, I say with all seriousness, Chief Donut Economics Advisor for Planet Earth. <laughs> 
And as an avowed steady stater, I could have had the knee-jerk reaction, why not the steady state economy? Why not just roll that donut out into the two parallel lines of social foundation and carrying capacity? Well, you know what? Kate makes an excellent case for the cruciality of figures and illustrations that double as working models and friendly metaphors. Man, I'll tip my coffee to the donut economy any day of the week. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.